what I love about what we do is that we help people lead better lives. I'm going to be better in this world because I'm living a healthier life. And that just has this halo effect across the rest of your world. Could I find that in other areas? Absolutely. I'm just incredibly lucky to be where I am right now. CEOs often feel stuck in the grind of scaling their business and feel like they're missing out on the best parts of life, like family, friends, or travel. On this podcast, CEOs come to take themselves and their companies to the next level. Let's dive into the Millionaire Mind with your host, Dallin Schultz. Hey, welcome back to another Millionaire Mind episode where I have some of the most successful business owners and CEOs sharing what motivates them to get out of bed every morning and how they elevate themselves and their companies to the next level. And I've got another incredible guest joining us today. And listen, I know I say that at the start of every episode, but it's because I do. I work very, very hard to bring in just incredible business minds onto this show so that you can learn as a business owner, as a current business owner or aspiring, gain some nuggets and motivation and stuff to get you to that next level. And I'm going to tell you what, you're in for a treat today. Today, we have the CEO of the number one top rated and reviewed personal fitness training companies in the world. And since stepping into this position five years ago, our guest today has helped grow the company to elite levels. And without further ado, let's go ahead and get into the mind of this amazing guest we have today. Andrew Wyant, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So Andrew, why don't you just take a quick minute and share with our guests a little bit more about who you are and what you're doing today. I'm the CEO of ISSA, which is the International Sports Sciences Association. And so when you hear a name like that, you think, what is this International Sports Sciences Association? What we do is we do online education and we help people who are passionate about fitness take their passion and turn it into a profession. And so when you start thinking about building a business, one of the questions that always comes up whenever someone brings me an idea is, what is the addressable market? How big can this idea be? And so with personal training, you're basically starting with the millions of people who are active and avid in the ways in which they want to move and change their life for the better. And so what we do is we take that passion and we connect it to a profession. And we do it through a 10-week training program. But what we've done over time is move from just doing personal training to adding lots of other disciplines around it. Awesome. So, and then I'm sure we're going to get into a lot of those disciplines. And and what I love about what you guys do, Andrew, is it's more than just education, right? You are showing and certifying these people to create a business and to create a life for themselves. So not only are you providing that education, you're providing an opportunity for them to become their own business owners. Exactly. That's why when you invited me on this program, I thought it was so incredible because when you look at what it takes to become a successful personal trainer. It's like the quote that's behind you. You can't have a million dollar dream with a minimum wage work ethic. Well, with ISSA, we used to say that the dream is free, but the hustle is sold separately. And so it's, <laughs> it's it. one of those things where uh, you want to be successful as a personal trainer. It takes uh, selling skills. It takes marketing skills. You want to be a nutrition coach or a fitness or a life coach, a health coach, all of which we connect people to. We give people the education and we give them the tools, but then it takes that extra level. It takes that next effort of work in order to go out and build that business. And that's why I think that your podcast and the way that you connect with people to give people the tools 
to go out and build their business and help them understand the mindset of what it takes to build a business. I think it's just amazing. I like what you said. Dreams are free, right? A lot of us have dreams. A lot of us have no problem dreaming, right? You sit there, especially when the Powerball gets up to the billions, right? Like who doesn't sit there and like, hmm, what would I do with that much money, right? Dreaming is free. It's fun. But what I've noticed is what really sets apart successful business owners from the dreamers, it's that work ethic. It's that drive. It's the consistency of just moving forward and having a tough mind. Like it's business. It's not all sunshines and rainbows. I know you can agree with that. Every person I've had on the show can agree with that. You got to have tough skin. You got to have grit and you've got to be willing to work and it doesn't happen overnight. So you got to keep going even when your mind and everybody else is telling you to quit. You got to keep pushing. And that stems from having a strong, clear mindset and knowing how to overcome different challenges and also recognizing that other people have gone through it. And that's really the purpose of this podcast is to help people understand like, hey, Dallin went through these challenges. Andrew went through these challenges. This is how they addressed it. And ideally, give you that thought, that nugget, that thing that will help you get to that next level. So I'm super excited to get into your journey, Andrew, because you have an incredible background. So let me start with a failure. Yeah, please do. (laughs) I'm going to start with a failure. And, you know, I try to make it sound like a success or I try to make it sound like, oh, I learned this, I learned that, which is all true, right? And I love one of those great quotes is that there are no failures. There are just opportunities to learn what doesn't work. So years ago, I encountered a person who had created a better golf swing. And when I say better golf swing, the traditional golf swing that most people have today uses what they call a Barden grip. And the Barden grip puts the golf club into your fingers. And for the average person, when they take the club in their fingers and they take the golf club back, what happens is they try to come back to hit it is the club face is open. And when they hit the ball with an open club face, the ball will start going straight And then the spin that's been imparted on it will make it slice to the right. And so it is so difficult for the average person to get the coordination, to get that club face back to the right position, hit the ball straight down the way. Well, so there was a guy by the name of Mo Norman, and he was a Canadian Hall of Famer, considered by some people to be the greatest ball striker in the history of the game. And Mo was a really unique individual. He may have been on the autistic spectrum, but what he did is he developed a golf swing that looked a little bit more like a baseball swing or a hockey slap shot. He used larger grips and he held the club, not so much in the fingers, but in the palms. And it created a motion that moved that club face in a single plane right down the line and shot after shot would be straight right at his target. It was incredible. Okay. So This comes along to me. I'm a young consultant. I've been working in the Boston Consulting Group, BCG, which is a big management consulting firm. And I think, well, this is amazing. This is going to be an incredible opportunity. I'm going to be incredibly rich. Well, okay. Problem number one is I was immediately focused on making a lot of money. We'll get to problem number two in a second. So it works. It absolutely works. But you have a wider stance and you have a shorter backswing. And so you look different, right? Now, I don't know if you spend a lot of time on the golf course, but people don't want to look different on the golf course. They want to look like Jack Nicholas or Tom Watson or Arnold Palmer or Tiger Woods. They want to look like the elite pros. So I get into this business. And in the first few months, I make every mistake you could possibly imagine. First mistake I make among the many 
was I did a direct mail piece in October. Well, I don't know if you follow golf around most of the world, but if you're in the northern part of the country, after Labor Day, people put their clubs away. They get ready for the winter. And if you're down in the south, you're in the beginning of football season and you're not really focused on golf yet, not until a little bit later. So make that mistake. Next mistake is everybody I know plays golf. I think golf is huge. How many people do you think play golf in America? Percentage-wise? Yeah. 5%. That's a very good guess. It's about 2%. Okay. They're about about 5 million avid core golfers. I mean, if you say ever pick up a golf club once in a year, it could be as much as 10% of the population would pick up a golf club. But that might be at like a, a top golf or someplace like that. So that's my kind of golf there, Andrew. I'm a mediocre top golfer at best is what I like to tell people. <laughs> Listen, I love top golf because I love going out there and just trying to smack the hell out of the ball. <laughs> So anyway, as you get to this failure, part of what I want this audience to understand is, is that I didn't listen to other people. I did all that I thought was the right thing to do. I thought, well, I'm going to hit on the marketing tools. I'm going to hit on this push to tell everybody about the fact there's a better golf swing. Well, it turns out dressable market was tiny. There aren't that many people who are avid core golfers. There is a habit that people had developed and there was a mindset that existed around how people view it. And they viewed it as they didn't want to be different. They didn't want to be laughed at or ridiculed for the changes in their golf swing. And actually hitting the ball straighter and keeping the ball in the fairway for those people who really thought, oh, I just want to score better, makes a ton of sense. But there's an ethos that exists in golf that's a little bit more of the get the big dog out hunting. If you want to play better golf for the average person, you leave your driver at home. You know, you take out your irons, you hit it off the tee, you keep it down the middle. It sounds interesting. It sounds boring. You keep it in the fairway. You get it up on the green. You get up and down. You move on to the next hole. Almost everybody could score better at golf if they chose to have a different mindset about the game. But that's not the way people play. So I spend five years trying everything, learning about infomercials, learning about uh, how to do direct response in that world. And so the takeaway that I got from this is I helped build the business, which is called Natural Golf, into a successful IPO on the American Stock Exchange. We were one of the top three advertisers on the Golf Channel. You would see our infomercials all over on the Golf Channel with uh, Pat Summerall, who hosted it. We had Mike Ditka in there. We had all these names out there. And what we never did is we never cracked the code as to how to change the behavior. And what we never did is break out and to get millions of more people into this golf game. Well, why did I fail? And what did I learn? Well, the reason I failed is, is that I didn't pay attention to the outside world in terms of what is the addressable market? What does it take to get somebody to change their behavior? What's the likelihood that you could get someone to actually make some meaningful change? If you study habits and you study atomic habits yourself, you know it's hard, right? You know going into it's hard. You have to have a high degree of motivation, a high degree of accountability. You have to have all that going for you. So when people are listening to your podcast and they're thinking about their new business idea and they're thinking about people to you, which seems like an obvious change, well, look, if I can change somebody's golf swing in these ways, they will play better golf. Is that what they wanted? Do they really want to score better at golf? Do they really want to play better? Well, no. Well, no, it would be like asking people years ago if they really wanted to quit smoking. They would say they wanted to quit smoking. But would they do the things that it takes to actually make that change in their life? Well, the answer was largely no. So it took external events and activities. I think smoking would still be on the rise if it hadn't been for this mass move to eliminate smoking from 
bars and from enclosed spaces and buildings. And if they hadn't sort of ostracized smokers, smoking would probably still be as prevalent today as it was then because it wasn't about cancer that caused people to stop it. It was because the behaviors were changed because of the environment that we lived in. Yeah, well said. So thank you for sharing that. And that's an incredible example and story of how things could have been different. And when you look back at that situation and what you know now, what would you have done differently, Andrew? I would never have gotten into the golf business. And the reason is, is this, is because when you think about all the opportunities that are in front of every one of your listeners here, and you think about the things you can choose, you have one gift, which is this presence. It is the precious time that you have. How you invest that time, that is how you are making your life. And so the choices that you make around that investment become critical. It becomes critical as to who do you surround yourself with? Who are the people who are around you, who are the closest ones? And can you take their advice? Can you take their counsel? Do they lift you? Do they support you? And if they don't, you actually need a new crew around you. And so when it comes to that time and it comes to your decisions, you could say, I have this great business idea. And what I need people to do in order to lose weight is to start walking. And here's the way I'm going to get people to start walking. Well, you get my point. It's all the things about habits and behaviors and behavior changing. One of the secrets of business and one of the things that I would have done differently is I would have looked at something that people already wanted to accomplish. I would have looked at the problem that they had and then whether or not my business represented the solution for them. And so if a problem for a person today is they don't feel fulfilled in their work, and they don't feel like that they are making a difference in the world, then if that person's passionate about fitness and they want to make a difference, they can make a difference in people's lives as a personal trainer or a nutrition coach, as a fitness coach. So you can see that connection. The next business I got involved with after natural golf was an extraordinary one. And it was a massive success and it was LifeLock. And so I don't know if you know the story of LifeLock, but it's really an amazing one. Do you know the story of LifeLock? I don't. And even if I did, some of our listeners probably don't. So go ahead and invite us into that world a little bit. So in about 2005, there were two founders of LifeLock, Robert Maynard and Todd Davis. And the two of them set out to basically take advantage of the fact that the credit bureaus had a tool where if you every 90 days reported that you thought you were at risk for identity theft, that you could, in effect, have your credit get an extra check. And so they set out LifeLock as a business that would help reduce the risk of your identity being stolen by putting in place these fraud alerts with the credit bureaus. Now, it's a service that you could have done on your own, but you'd have to remind yourself and set the, kind of the memory to report to the credit bureaus every 90 days. And then LifeLock set in place to put almost an insurance policy, if you want to call it that, behind that to protect you in the event that you actually were a victim so that they could solve the problem of your identity theft, meaning they would go do everything it takes to resolve that identity incident. So the two of them start this business. And Todd Davis comes up with a stroke of brilliance. He, in the course of an interview, decides to give out his social security number. Well, he gives out his social security number and it immediately becomes kind of a, a press coverage kind of situation. And as time goes on, lots of identity thieves try to use Todd's social security number and some of them are successful, but the company resolves all those problems. 
Well, around this time, the investors in the business had realized that the other co-founder, Robert Maynard, had some issues that he had to leave the business. And so then they invited me in to become the chief marketing officer of the business. And so unlike that original story, here is a new situation where we help identify to the entire world that every three seconds an identity is stolen. So we all have a problem every three seconds. And if you are someone who has anything that you want to protect, and in this case, we talk about guarantee your good name. Well, Dallin, you've worked hard. You have built a tremendously successful business and a successful podcasting business. Your name is worth a lot. And so you're someone who needs to guarantee your good name. So we set out an advertising and marketing program that is so simple in concept, which is we state the problem. The problem is, is that your name is at risk. We're all at risk of identity thieves. The solution is very simple. The solution is LifeLock. And it's an effect. You set it and forget it. You pay between $10 and $30 or $40 a month for different levels of service, and you never have to think about it again. And if, by some chance, you are a victim of identity theft, LifeLock stands behind you with a million-dollar guarantee to make sure that they will spend up to $1 million to restore your good name. How simple a business is that? On a surface, sounds pretty simple. I'm sure behind the scenes, there is a lot of moving parts and stuff going on. There were a lot of controversies and a lot of things that happened. But, you know, the concept of that, the idea, the problem and the solution were so simple. They fit right in with what people needed to do. And so we took a business that had been $3 million in sales in one year, took it to $100 million in the second year. We took it to $200 million and then $400 million over the course of the four years that I was there. And the business ultimately sold for $2.3 billion. This was a startup in the Tempe area that was funded by a group of local investors. One of the first investors put $100,000 in on the back of a napkin. The massive success of this was exactly that. It was a simple problem, simple solution. In effect, could help show people that they had this challenge and then get them to that answer. One thing that you brought up that I think is really important as a business owner, and this kind of ties into your first example, is... Number one, you got to identify the problem. And I think one of the traps a lot of business owners and entrepreneurs fall into, I've been guilty of this in the past as well, because somebody used this term the other day. I'm like, yep, that's me. They said they're delusionally optimistic. Yep, that's 100% me. And so the trap that we fall into is that we see this idea, we get this idea, and we're like, this is incredible. This is revolutionary. This is going to be the next Amazon, the next Apple, the next Tesla, whatever it is, right? right? Because we are so optimistic about it. And we bypass one of the most important steps when putting together a business and that a simple market analysis, yep. just determining if there's actually a need in that space for it. Because you can have the best idea, the best product, the best service. Right. It's not worth a damn if nobody's going to pay for it, right? And, exactly. Uh, And one thing that I like that you shared about LifeLock is that some people probably didn't realize how at risk they were. And so if people aren't aware of the problem, if you can simply bring it to the forefront of their mind and say, hey, did you know every three seconds somebody's identity gets taken? They're like, oh, okay, this is a bigger problem that I need to be more aware of. So in some situations, people may not be aware of the problem that you're solving and it's your job to bring it to the forefront of their mind. Um, now going back before we keep going down your life lock journey, I meant to ask you this earlier and touch on it. You talked about 
what you would consider a, a failure. I want to consider it a failure going through natural golf. And you shared some of the things that you would have done differently. What did you learn from that? What good did you take away from that opportunity that you were then able to leverage and parlay into this LifeLock opportunity? I took so many good things. One of the most important things that I took away from it was LifeLock would never have been successful in the way that it was if I hadn't learned so much about core direct response. And when I say core direct response, for those of you who don't get into marketing, it is all about the statement of problem and solution. And so a direct response ad would, if you can imagine, it would be the kind of commercial that I'm offering you a product or a service where your action should be taken as a direct result of that TV commercial or as a result of that radio spot, print ad, or direct mail piece. And I contrast that with a brand ad, which is in a brand ad, I'm trying to change or influence the way you think about something. So if you think about an ad for, generally speaking, an ad for Taco Bell, I'll just use that as an example. So if I say something about where I play a gong and the idea is to get you to associate the idea with, of Taco Bell, right? Now, Taco Bell could have a, an ad that is for a specific product for a particular type of taco or enchilada or you know burrito, whatever it might be. But a direct response ad would basically be um, scan this QR code to get a free burrito at Taco Bell, right? So that would be the difference between a direct response ad and a brand ad would be take an immediate action here. And so for entrepreneurs and people who want to build businesses, brand ads are largely useless. Unless you come from an extraordinary financial background, running an ad that basically says that you have this positioning or you do this thing or you do that thing, or this is where you are, it is you're blowing into the wind. You won't get a reaction. Now, however, in a direct response ad, you're actually offering somebody a specific thing with a specific action that you want them to take on. So I learned all about that the hard way through lots of failures there. And it was the successes where I discovered, oh, well, these are the kinds of things that you can say that will get people to respond. Even to this day, there's magic to saying free. Free, free trial, free starter, free this, free that, you know, get your free consultation. And as much as we all understand that there is no free lunch, there are lots of things that are free in this world. And there are reason to, you know, give your name, phone number, your email address to fill out that form to get that white paper download or the, you know, the top 10 tips as to how to build the best podcast. Yeah. I think the psychology of marketing and sales is really what draws a lot of people in. Like, sure, you can be very, very successful. You can get your message across. You can generate more sales. But I don't know for me, I can't speak for everyone in this field. I love the psychology behind sales and marketing. And it's fascinating. And when I stumble across some of those books or those podcasts, and I see how I reacted to certain yeah. branding and marketing sales situations, it's quite fascinating. And it was through those experiences, it sounds like, Andrew, the position you got at LifeLock, you were the chief marketing officer, correct? That was your yep. foot in the door. And uh, and that sounds like it came because of a direct result of your experience with that previous business. Would you agree? A hundred percent. It was all the learnings there. And there were lots of other little things along the way, but that really is what made that happen. And then LifeLock's success led to me um, leaving and then getting a position as the president of the National Academy of Sports Medicine, which is my current company's number one competitor. 
And, you know, there it was taking that same playbook and helping people understand that they could connect their passion to their profession uh, and helping to grow a business there. We, we grew from, you know, probably uh, 12, 14 million to about $80 million over this, the course of just a couple of years. And we did it largely through the direct response advertising on places like ESPN and ESPN radio and the like. And it was about turn your passion into your profession. I want to touch on this for a minute because there's a lot of controversy around that type of topic, like chase your passion, follow your passion. And other people say, Hey, that's a load of crap. Don't chase your passion, chase like what's actually going to make money. And I could see both sides of this. And I'm sure we've both experienced and, and somebody listening to this has knows somebody that went to chase a passion and they're more broken, unsuccessful than they would have been if, had they not chased it. So I'm interested to just kind of get your thoughts around that because this can be a very polarizing topic for yeah. some people. So I'm just interested what your thoughts process is around that. So this is a deeply philosophical thing, but when it comes to chasing after money, chasing after success, chasing after those kinds of definitions outside of having it be fulfilling, I think it ultimately always fails. And I think that the mirror the matching of those two things together is where the secret is. And if I had one thing to recommend to your listeners, it would be that chasing something because it will make you a lot of money is not going to make you happy. It can make you a lot of money, but it certainly yep. is not going to be the thing that fulfills you. Trying to find the connection between the thing that is your passion. So if you said to me, chase your passion. Well, if chasing your passion represented raising long-haired rabbits and trying to have a business of selling you know, rabbits from your farm. Well, to your point, that may or may not actually work in resulting in a profitable business because if the total addressable market and the market opportunity to that is limited in the following ways and you're subject to all these ups and downs, then no, that won't be a successful business. So I think the way I would answer the question is this, you should try to harness your passion. You don't necessarily have to follow your passion. You need to harness it. And so if your passion was around you know, long-haired rabbits in this case, then maybe the answer is, is that uh, you're pursuing a business that is the design and creation of things that are scalable, that provide things to the people who have them as pets or breeding them. Or maybe you're creating furry babies um, that you're producing and selling to people who love uh, you know, long-haired rabbits. You know, I'm taking this off on the example largely because it's not that if you follow your passion in a limited fashion and you don't go through the exercise of what is my addressable market, what is the market opportunity, how am I going to do this, then the chances of success are very poor. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I should probably ask this question more often because it, it comes up on the podcast and I think you hear polarizing stuff all over yeah. in, in books and podcasts and stuff. And my thoughts around this, because I've experienced this in myself, I think a lot of people have a passion for something and they assign it to a specific item or vehicle. So rather than identifying what's driving that passion, they think it's that vehicle that they're passionate about. And and to give you an example, I'm very passionate about, I like making an impact. I like sharing my experiences to help people along their journey. Hence, part of the reason I started this podcast, right? And I get into the minds of people like you as well. Now, the vehicle that I've attached that passion to is real estate investing and helping people understand that it's through certain real estate investments that you could set yourself up very easily for 
much better success in life with the right strategy and even knowing that yeah. options are available to them. So my passion isn't necessarily the real estate. That's what makes the most sense to me, but that's my vehicle. Now, yeah. I can make an impact. I can change people's lives using some other vehicle, right? Yeah. So I think the trap and challenge that some people fall into is that they associate their passion with a specific vehicle, right. object, hobby, whatever it is. And I think the question people need to be asking themselves is, what about that is driving my passion? And you have said that so well. I'm a complete believer. I know someone who in the Phoenix area is in commercial real estate. And his differentiation in commercial real estate is about service. And I don't just mean service. He stands there to do whatever it is that you need at any kind. He wants to take care of you. He wants to help you in whatever way possible. And so when I think about that, he could be in investment banking. He could be in banking. He could be in the mortgage business. He could be in a hundred other businesses. What he tries to do is connect people and serve others. And he does it in a selfless way to not look for... I'm looking for you to give me something in return for me helping. I'm here as a resource. I want to help you all the time. And what happens in turn is, is that people who are looking for someone to help them buy a building or find office space or manufacturing space, I'll say, oh, well, you know, I know Blake. Let me send you to Blake because he's a great guy. Exactly. He could have applied those skill sets to really any business, but he's chosen the commercial real estate. So if you're in this situation, if you're trying to figure out, maybe you're just trying to gain clarity on what it is you want to do, where you want to start a business, rather than asking what you're passionate about, one thing that I've done to help me gain clarity is ask yourself, what energizes you? What energizes you and what drains you? And you might find that whatever that thing is, or those skill sets that energize you, they might be able to be applied to multiple different businesses. So don't get so hung up on the business or the vehicle itself gain clarity on who you are as a person and what energizes you and just trust that once you gain that clarity, an opportunity is going to present itself and you're just going to be like, yep, that's it. And you'll find your calling, your niche. Now you feel like you are pursuing your passion and it still work. I'm not going to say, people say, follow your passion, never work a day. That's bull. That's a little bull. You're going to have days where you don't want to work and it is hard as hell, but you're willing to do it because you have that clarity, you have that passion, you know you're making a difference and you're doing things that ultimately energize you and you can see the impact it's going to make. So well said. I completely agree with you. And I think you said something early on there, like the opportunity will present itself. I'm a big believer in that Edison-like connection between perspiration. <laughs> what percentage is it inspiration? What percentage is it perspiration? 99% perspiration, 1% inspiration. So when you find that clarity... I know that I am fascinated by the way people think and the way they make their decisions. And that's back to sales and sales skills and marketing. And so I can apply the gifts that I've been given from storytelling and a connection perspective into all kinds of businesses. What I love about what we do is that we help people lead better lives. I could do that in lots of other areas, but this is a very clear line for me between I have a passion for healthy living because I think that healthier living improves your life. And so if I can help people make that connection to say, gosh, if I move a little bit more, if I eat a little bit better, if I drink a little bit less, if I sleep a little bit more, if I recover a little bit better, then I'm going to show up as a better father. I'm going to show up as a better friend. I'm going to be a better spouse. 
I'm going to be better in this world because I'm living a healthier life. And that just has this halo effect across the rest of your world. And so that's what I love about what I do today. Could I find that in other areas? Absolutely. I'm just incredibly lucky to be where I am right now. Yeah. And I appreciate you sharing that. Listen, we're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, Andrew, I want to get in. You still have a vast amount of other experience and other businesses and stuff before you even got to where you are today. So we're not going to be able to get into all of it. But when we come back from the quick commercial break, I'd like to hear more about just your journey from LifeLock on and, and just, again, some more of the lessons and things you learned along the way. So we'll be right back. Hey, Dallin Schultz here with Rev Equity Group. We just launched an exciting new investment opportunity for those looking to diversify their investments across a thousand plus apartment units in some of the hottest markets in the country. If you are fed up with banks and the stock market and want to invest in hard assets to more effectively grow and preserve your wealth, then click on the link in the show notes for more info or go to investwithrev.com and schedule a short 15 minute intro call so we could determine if our investment strategy is aligned with your goals. It's time to take your financial future into your own hands. Take action, schedule a call, and find out how my team can serve you. At Rev, we make apartment investing easy. All right. Welcome back to Millionaire Mind. So Andrew, share with us, uh, share with the listener a little bit about your journey after LifeLock. So after LifeLock, I had absolutely no idea what I was going to do. I had ballooned up in my weight. I was drinking too much. I was living a life that had been lots of steaks and wine and travel. And I put on probably 50 pounds. And on a five foot nine inch frame, when I got up over 200 pounds, that would have been great if I was a running back in NFL, but I was not. And it was definitely not muscle. And so when I left LifeLock, I thought, well, I don't have any idea what I'm going to do. And it was a little bit of an intersection of kind of this combination of things. I was about 40 years old when my daughter was born. And I had this realization that when she was 14 years old, I'd be 54. And I wanted to be the kind of dad who was engaged and active and someone who my daughter saw as someone who she could count on in that way. And I thought, well, gosh, you know, I'm not going to be that person if I don't take care of myself. And at the same time that happened, I had gotten this call from a recruiter about this opportunity with business in the fitness industry. And it was as if by magic that the skills of storytelling and the skills of marketing were needed in this fitness industry. At the same time, I wanted to go through this personal transformation. And so for myself, even before I got in the business, it was just a question of this. I went to see a doctor and the doctor said to me, well, your cholesterol is too high, your weight's too high, and uh, I'd like to put you on Lipitor so that we can get you on this statin to improve your overall health. And I said, wait a minute, can't I get my cholesterol down on my own by you know, diet and exercise? And my doctor laughed at me. She actually laughed at me. And she said, well, you know, people don't do that. What do you mean people don't do that? And she said, well, you know, people say that and they come back and tell them to come back in two months or three months and we test them again and they haven't improved. They don't stick with that habit. And I said, well, that's ridiculous. So I set out and it, for me, it was really simple. I, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to change. But what I thought was, well, all right, well, 
Um, I'm going to start by, by walking. I'm going to try and walk until I can start run. I'm going to run until I can run a little bit further. I'm going to change my diet and start uh, eating things that will be lower in cholesterol. I'll cut back on red meat. I'll you know start eating oatmeal in the morning. I'll change the things that will fundamentally improve these markers. And when I went back to the doctor, I had lost weight, improved my scores. And she said, okay, well, I'll come back in six months. And that's what continued on. And so the intersection for me personally of having this life change, I dropped the 50 pounds and that is now 14 years ago, never looked back. And it's always been this kind of continuous process of saying, you know, how can I keep working on getting better? How can I be in the best shape of my life this year at 55 versus where I was back at the age of 40? And so that connection to the job is what became interesting to me. Because the job part was, I was living the same challenge that our audience was experiencing. There's a couple of things I want to unpack here. And, and thank you so much for sharing that. Number one, you mentioned when you had your daughter, that's when you started rethinking, really focusing on your physical health. You wanted to be healthy, you want to be a good example to her. I don't know, different people might have different opinions about this questions, but for those business owners that are actively choosing to maybe withhold having kids or starting a family because of what they think it's going to prevent them from doing. Just given your experience, how did having a family actually help propel you forward? Or do you feel like it prevented opportunities? You know, you can only be in one place at one time. And when I was younger and I was working through, I would work a hundred hours a week without ever thinking. And so I may not have been the best husband, but I certainly wouldn't have been present as a father. And so it's a trade-off, right? So I waited till I was 40 years old and I was fortunate that I was able to have my daughter and that have all those experiences. I'm glad I waited because I'm at a different stage of my life now than I was then. Had it been a different circumstances, I would have loved to have had four or five kids and, you know, started it much earlier, but I don't think that I could have myself been able to do it all. And so today I prioritize my daughter and my stepchildren in a way that I wouldn't have been able to prioritize them. I appreciate you sharing that. And what I hope you get from this to those that are listening, your situation is going to be different than everybody else's, right? So I asked Andrew that question to get a different perspective. And honestly, it was kind of for me because I had my first kid when I was 22, 21, 22. And so I don't know what it's like doing business without kids. And I see some friends, I see some colleagues that haven't had kids yet. I feel like they're so much further ahead. But then I look at the impact I'm making with my kids. My eight-year-old daughter, she's our oldest. She just launched a photo scanning business. And she's going around to all of our neighbors, knocking on their doors, seeing if they have an old photo albums that are sitting in stores, sitting in an attic that they never look at, that they have to move a hundred times because every time they move, it's like, oh, look at these photos. And so there's different things that I'm able to do with my kids because of my experience in business that I wouldn't have been able to had I not had kids, right? So the point I'm making is that as you pursue business, and and this is, I I wasn't expecting going down this path or having this question uh, or conversation with you, Andrew, but I think it's an important aspect to talk about when it comes to business, because a lot of us are trying to figure out, do we have a family? Do we not have a family? If you have a family, if you have kids, if you're married or significant other, how do you juggle that? How do you juggle business? Like running a business and having a family, those are two very overtime jobs. I'm not even going to say full-time jobs, right? Mm -hmm. Like 
it requires a lot of focus and time. So one of the the things that I've learned from successful business owners that are managing both is how they really manage their time. And I think the reoccurring key of what I've recognized through these interviews is the ability to be present, to be where their feet are. So when they're at home, when they're with family, they're with family. When they're at right. work, focused on work, they're at work. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges, being a successful business owner and raising a family. So just wanted to get your insight on that. So thank you for sharing that. Well, I appreciate you saying that. I want to add one last thing, which is I don't want to make it sound like I actually figured it out. I think Me either. the number of times that I will be driving my daughter to school and be on a conference call and continuing the entire length of the time is more than I would care to count. I think that to your point, how lovely and how amazing about your daughter being an entrepreneur and like creating a business and, you know, our kids watch us and see us and they soak it all in. And it's not so much the things that you say, it's what you do. And that's what they see. They see what you're actually doing and not what you say. That's a challenge because uh, you've got to have integrity. You have to have integrity that there's consistency between those two things because your kids will sniff it right out. Um, and that's why I think that you can talk about being present, but if you can't put that cell phone down at the dinner table, and if you can't actually engage and look people in the eyes and listen with real intent, uh, then you know you're not really serving either purpose. And so I think that's a it's a big message for everybody. Actions. 100% speak louder than words. A lot of us had, have heard this ever since our youth, right? So, Andrew, man, I don't know where the heck this time went. I truly, truly don't. I feel like we just barely scratched the surface on your experience and the lessons that you can share with us. But as we start wrapping this up, you were sharing with us the reason you got into this fitness industry and the opportunity just happened to come up right when you decided to make that personal decision of changing your life. And this is a perfect example of what I like to say, catching the wave of opportunity. And when you're making conscious decisions to improve your life or be intentional in any way, it's incredible what opportunities seem to just present themselves to you. So in the next couple minutes that we have, Andrew, share with our listener, again, what you learned through that experience and how you were able to parlay that and transition into what you're doing today. Well, gosh, I think about what I'm doing today and the kind of the magic of that is uh, when you find that alignment of what you're passionate about and what you have talent for and that there's a market opportunity for it, it's kind of a question of just how big can it be? It's not a question of will you be successful or not? The thing that a lot of us will forget is we try to put so much of it on ourselves rather than trying to build the team of people who complement the work that we do. And I can never say enough how important it is to be able to build that team. And, uh, and there's so many great books and leaders and people who think about teams and how to build teams and all that. And there's an alchemy, right? So again, I wouldn't profess to be able to say that there is one solution because it changes over time. We're a different company today. ISSA, my current business, the International Sports Science Association, it was a $10 million business four years ago. We will probably be a $100 million business in this coming year. We're an $80 plus million business today. And Incredible. that growth from $10 million to $80 million to $100 million and beyond, it's a very different company to run when it's 10 versus 20 versus 50 versus 100. 
you know, we made the Inc. 5000 list this year, which we're really proud of. And we're also really proud that we're one of the best places to work. And so when I think about kind of the equation of how do you keep yourself to be highly rated and regarded as a place to work and have that growth and make these transitions, it becomes a layer and a matrix in an organization. I'm not as good a CEO of the company today as I was when it was 10 million because I like to have my fingers into everything. And so I have to step further away from the CEO job and more into where I have the passion. So I actually need to focus more on kind of the storytelling, the marketing and the sales and less on how do you run a hundred million dollar company? Cause that's not really where my best skills are. That's a beautiful thing about scaling and being a successful business owner is that one, being able to recognize that you got to have the self-awareness to recognize that, but you find the right people to have on your team. And you delegate. Stephen R. Covey in his book, Seven Habits, Highly Effective People, he states that everything is accomplished through delegation. Everything. It's either a delegation of your time or it's a delegation to someone else. And we all have the same amount of time in a day. How we manage it, how we prioritize it, that's what's going to be the difference. And being able to know what energizes you, what you're passionate about, what you're good at, the sooner you can get into that frequency and stay there and delegate the other things to people that energize them. That's an important thing too. I think another trap we fall into is things that drain me and that I don't like doing. I think nobody likes doing and it drains them. So realizing that what drains me is actually going to energize somebody else. Once you find that person, you keep them and you partner up, you hire them, you do whatever you got to do so that you can keep growing and working on the business, not in the business. There's this thing I came across the other day, and this has kind of been a theme of our conversation around, and you mentioned this early on, connecting the passion to the profession. And I can't remember who this was. It was a, an Instagram reel I came across, and they were talking about this success nexus. And they were talking about three questions, asking yourself, like, what are you good at? What do people want? And what are you passionate about? And so what I actually did was I drew three circles that overlapped each other. And the whole idea of this is being able to answer and identify those three questions and that nexus, that place where all three of those connect, that's your sweet spot. That's your sweet spot. And so you're not just chasing your passion. You're chasing what you're good at and you're also chasing what people want. And if you can gain clarity on that, put those three together, boy, are you going to start rocking and you're going to be energized. You're going to experience this new life and energy that comes into you. And that's where magic truly happens. Absolutely. So, well, Andrew, this has been incredible. And usually I wrap this up by asking, so what's next? Where are you guys heading? But you already shared that with us. And that's incredible. You went from a $10 million company to this year, you're anticipating being around a $100 million company. And that is phenomenal. And boys, girls, that is what happens when you have good leadership and you have somebody that's able to take from their experiences. Andrew shared with us, he started out with what some consider a, a big failure, but he was able to learn from those, apply those situations, and it opened up opportunities to get him to where he is today. Guys, business, success, it is a journey. It is not a destination. And there's going to be more mistakes that Andrew makes, and there's going to be more things that he learns and guess what? It's just going to make them all that more adaptable and being effective in the business world. So Andrew, this has been incredible. As we wrap this up, there's four questions I like to ask 
every guest. And the first one being, what is one absolute book recommendation for those looking to scale and further develop their millionaire mind? I would start with the four agreements. And I would say, if you don't know them, it's be impeccable with your word. Don't take anything personally. Don't make assumptions and always do your best. It's a short read. Very powerful. And I just covered it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's really good. And they, they go into depth on each one of those. So if you haven't read it, highly recommend it. What has been one of your favorite quotes that you've embodied and lived by? So it's newer to me, but I love Maya Angelou's quote, believe people when they show you who they are. And to me, what's so powerful about that is we try to tell ourselves stories about someone else's intent or what someone is, what's behind their words, or we try to read and interpret it. And if you actually just believe them when they show you who they are, not necessarily what they say, it will take you miles because your entrepreneurship journey will involve so many people who are always selling something, trying to do something. But if you look at the actions behind the words, you'll get to the root of it. And don't try to make up a story for them. Just believe them. I love that. And one thought I have on that is it takes time to show your actions and for people to recognize and see you for who you are. People could say anything and you can buy into that. But if you're truly evaluating someone based on their actions and you're that business owner that understands that, it might take you a little bit longer to get to where you want to be success-wise and business growth-wise. But as you do that, you're building a core foundation. You're building the right relationships the right way and just trust that it's going to come back. It's going to come back and you're, you're going to do well. So Andrew, if there was one thing you could share with fellow business owners that are beginning or simply trying to get to that next level, what would it be? I would say find a mentor because it's a lonely road when you're on your own and having a person who you can talk to, who you can have not have the judgment right? You want the person to root for you, but you also don't want to be in a situation where you're shaping the story you're telling, or you're trying to get a particular outcome. A real mentor is someone who you can share the ups and downs with, and they're going to give you their straight reaction. And I found that mentor, my wife, who I can count on for, I might not like what she has to say, but she's going to give me that straight truth. I think that's very solid advice. And a follow-up question to this, since you brought it up, Thoughts on paid mentors versus non-paid mentors? I think that if you have to have a paid mentor, you need to keep looking. I think that it's great to have advice, but once there is an exchange of goods and services, that's a different relationship. That's not a mentor any longer. That can be a coach. And that's great. There's a lot of value in that. But what I'm talking about is a mentor who is somebody who's in it because they care about you and your success, not because you represent an income stream or a value to them. And I'm great with business coaches. I think that they're wonderful. And I think we all need help and support, but it's different. A mentor is not a person who you're paying. I like that distinction. And I appreciate you sharing that because I think there's a lot of disconnect and miscommunication and different thoughts around that. So at the end of the day, and you might need a business coach, right? Yeah. You might need a business Most coach people do. more than... Yeah. So I'm not trying to, to poo-poo on business coaches by any means, but just wanted to follow up. And, and I think that was an incredible explanation. I've, I've used many business coaches over the years and I've had uh, transformation programs that have gone through. I believe in them and I believe that they serve a particular value. There's a little bit of a season and a reason. And I think that when you have that relationship, I think it can be terrific. And I think it runs its course for the most part for most people. But you know, someone who is going to be a real mentor, I think 
it's a tough relationship to find, but when you find it, you can build on it and you can create something where it's not like having a parent, but it's a little bit more like having somebody who is a friend who will have expertise that they can offer you advice on. I love it. Awesome. Andrew, how can our listener learn more about you and your business? My personal email address is awyant, A-W-Y-A-N-T, at issaonline.com. Uh, you can find the company at issaonline.com. And if I can be of assistance to any of your listeners in any way about their businesses, helping them along the way, I've served on the board of quite a few businesses and tried to help entrepreneurs because to me, the ability to give back to people who are trying to build a business is something that I love to be able to share the things that I've learned mostly through failure. Love it. We didn't talk about this. We didn't share it real quick in closing. How many people has ISSA been able to impact? So we have directly trained 540,000 people. And so 540,000 people, and I'd like to believe that they've all worked with 50 people. You're talking about, you know, what is that? 27 million people's lives have been touched around the world. So maybe that's a little bit extreme, but the reality of it is, is that we're trying to reach 100 million lives by 2030. And to me, I'll know that we've made a difference when you start to see obesity rates and rates of cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure, diabetes. As those things start to fall in our society, I'll know that we've made an impact and we've got a long way to go. I love it. Thank you for sharing. Look, this has been an incredible conversation with Andrew. And if this is your first time listening, I'm so glad that you tuned in. People have been asking me what my company does. So since I have you here listening to my show, I'll share that with you now. My company partners with busy professionals just like Andrew that are looking to experience significant tax savings and have more to invest and even reinvest their hard-earned capital. And we work with other successful business owners like you by offering them opportunities to invest alongside us in large apartment deals. At Rev, we found that most successful business owners have a strong desire to give and serve. And we simply provide the vehicle to enable them to grow and preserve their wealth so they can give of their time and financial success more abundantly and freely. If you've been wanting to get involved in apartment investing, but have been too busy to figure out where or how to start, then you can find out how I could serve you by visiting investwithrev.com and schedule a 15-minute discovery call. A lot of people make the mistake thinking they need millions of dollars to get started investing in real estate, and that's not the case. And you can often get started much, much sooner than you've realized. But it can be overwhelming vetting the right investment and the right operator. But at Rev, we make the investment process easy. So Andrew, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed our conversation and hope that you and I can connect more and maybe even work together in the near future. Sounds great. I would love that. Thank you so much. And to our listener, remember, you can't have a million-dollar dream with a minimum wage work ethic. So go out there and earn your win for today, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Hope you got value from this episode of The Millionaire Mind, a journey into the mindset of successful business owners. If you want to get results, you've got to take the right steps to get there. Dallin hosts a free weekly educational webinar focused on teaching you how to start investing in apartments so you too can experience the benefits of real estate ownership without doing any of the heavy lifting. There you can gain insights, connect with others like you, and ask Dallin all your burning questions about how you can start owning apartments today. Go to themillionairemind.us. That link is in the show notes.